everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And today is a special bonus episode with the author of our November book club pick. Yes. So we're here with Diksha Basu, who is the author of this month's book club pick, Destination Wedding. She is a writer and occasional actor. She's originally from New Delhi, India, and she holds a BA in economics from Cornell University and an MFA in creative writing from Columbia University. And now she divides her time between New York City and Mumbai. Her first novel, The Windfall, was an international bestseller, and it's currently in development for the screen with anonymous content. Welcome, Diksha. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much. It's such a pl- pleasure to be here. We're so excited to hear more about the behind the scenes of this book. We both enjoyed it so much and we had such an interesting conversation about it yesterday. So we're excited to get the inside track from you. <laughs> I hope I can provide exciting insights. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> well, we introduced you at a high level, but we'd love to hear a little bit more about you in your own words. Can you tell us a little bit more about your writing career and your journey to become an author? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because in your introduction, and I know that this is uh, what generally has shows up when you Google me or when you look for me is occasional actor, but I wonder if it's time to retire that into the past tense of previously was an actor. <laughs> I'm really not doing much anymore. So actually, but the way I found myself to writing was that after I uh, finished my undergrad and I was working in New York for some time, and then I actually moved to Bombay to act in Bollywood. I had been on stage in New York and I had had sort of relative success. And so it all went to my head and I thought I'm going to move to Bollywood and see what happens. And it was, um, it, it, I acted in a, a couple of independent films. I did a lot of theater, but along the way, I really got frustrated with, any sort of lack of agency that I had as a young woman without any connections in the industry, without, you know, the, the age old tale, I started to get extremely frustrated and realized that this was not an industry that I wanted to continue to work within. And that's when I started sort of turning to writing. And that's when, so I can't, I'm not one of those people who can say I've been writing my whole life and I was always destined to do this. My undergraduate degree was in economics and I was working in finance and I went into acting. So really my only thing that's been consistent has been inconsistency. That actually is great to hear instead of somebody who has a very linear path. Yeah, <laughs> I've had several. So then I uh, I started writing and I really was enjoying the solitude of it. I think I just spent too much time either um, backstage or on sets and was finding that world not satisfying creatively, uh, professionally, personally, really in any way. Uh, so I started writing and I got into Columbia's MFA program, which is uh, where I did my MFA back in 2011. I started there. And that was what I was working on at Columbia is what resulted in the windfall. Since then, I have to say, I haven't really been acting anymore. That's been something that the last time I think I acted was actually, no, sorry, that's not true. I completely forgot. I did a small independent film in 2014, 2014. Yes, I shot that in 2014 along the India-Pakistan border, which was an amazing experience. And it allowed me to sort of semi-retire that part of my professional life on, a, on very good terms. And since that point, I haven't been working on stage or on film anymore. And I've been focused entirely on writing. Um, And I know in your bio, we said that uh, The Windfall is currently in development for the screen. Is it going to be a TV show or a movie? 
It's in development as a TV show in um, out of uh, with anonymous content in LA, which has been a fascinating experience to be sort of on the other side of things. It's uh, so strange to let go of it. I'm only a consultant. I'm not one of the writers. So every uh, as the scripts get developed, they get sent to me. And I have to say, and I hope my agents aren't listening because I got sent episode <laughs> two about six weeks ago and I haven't brought myself to open the email yet. <laughs> They're doing a fantastic job with it. Everything I've read so far, I absolutely love and admire. And it's a different uh, creative process in Entirely, but I get so scared when I see those coming. <laughs> yeah, it must be really scary to kind of let go of this world you've created and have somebody else add and tweak and edit it it's in a so way that strange. doesn't exist in your in your brain. Right, exactly. It really, uh, I, it's like letting children go out into the world. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> sort of accepting that uh, it belongs to someone else, not entirely to me. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you said in your bio is that you split your time between Mumbai and New York City. And you've said before that they both feel like home. Um, we wanted to ask you a little bit, like, what does home mean to you? Because I think that um, we want to get into this whole cultural theme within the book around cultural identity. And Tina, I feel like she didn't feel American enough when she was in America, but then she didn't necessarily feel Indian enough when she was India. And, you know, is this something that you have experienced personally? Yeah, I think uh, writing this book was a lot of me grappling with this idea because I I, uh, I was raised by quite fairly restless academic parents. So I was born in Delhi and then I sort of grew up traveling around, went to several different schools, ended up spending sort of three months a year for a few years in Sweden because my parents were doing academic stints in Stockholm and just sort of on the move. And that was such a luxury and such a burden, both. And I felt I was at many junctures sort of given the choice of how I channeled it into myself through which lens and it kept changing with each move and it was and so as I got older and as I went out on my own and I was no longer you know beholden to where my parents were moving and I found myself choosing a similarly nomadic lifestyle and then wondering why I was choosing that and which cities I was choosing and what was home to me and you know it's I don't want to say something as trivial as home is where the heart is. I think it does go beyond that. It does. It was making me think when I moved back to India as an adult and to, I had gone back my whole life twice a year. So we would, so I was never sort of part of the diaspora as such. I was spending four months a year in India, the remainder of the time in America, for instance, when I was in high school. So it was never um, any kind of, cultural dislocation to be in one place or the other, but there was something so different to go to India and as a, as a silly example, to not have to spell my name at Starbucks or to not have to give a false fake name at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. So suddenly realizing those things, looking around and thinking, if I had to meet a stranger at, who didn't know what I looked like, I can no longer as rely on the description of, oh, I'll be the Indian woman sitting there. You know, there I look like the billion people around me. And everything that comes up with that, and that makes you think about home more. So I don't think I have a concrete answer to your question, Grace. I love that question. And it's a question I grapple with in the book through my characters who come at it through two different angles, Tina and Marianne. They, their idea of home and identity come from two different perspectives. One comes more internally, one comes more externally. And it's something that I continue to think about and navigate without concrete answers. And in a way more so now, my husband's a white New Zealander who was born in India. So he, his identity is even sort of more convoluted than what I've been thinking about. And now we have these two daughters who are half Indian, half New Zealanders. One was born in New York, one was born in Bombay. And so these conversations and these topics just keep living with us. And I hope they continue to, because I don't think I'm the kind who'll ever be able to pick a city, country, neighborhood, home 
and permanently call it home. I occasionally wish I could, but then I sort of go back to being okay being out of suitcases. Yeah. I feel like I have somewhat of the counter experience, but I sometimes wish I had a more nomadic life. So it's definitely <laughs> the grass is always greener in some in some cases. I think so. And I think it just it just keeps changing. I don't know. I I, I wish I had a I, and I keep getting asked that question because obviously destination wedding is all about these questions. But my only answer is that I've reached no answer by the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well we enjoyed we enjoyed going on the ride with you regardless. Yeah, we really did. So tell me a little bit about what your writing process was like. I'm curious both overall and then also if the way that you wrote changed from your first book to Destination Wedding, which is your second published book. Oh, hugely. You know, when I was writing The Windfall, first of all, a large part of that was written while I was at Columbia. And then even after when I was living almost entirely of the time in New York and I had the luxury of time, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. And so I could spend eight, nine hours a day walking around, staring out. Of, I used to write at the Center for Fiction in Midtown and just sort of sitting there and staring out of the window and seeing what inspires me and um, what, during my time in India. In fact, Interestingly, the windfall, I was I would go to India and I would just sort of live there and then I would come to New York and actually write it. And Destination Wedding, everything in my life had changed by then. I had two kids back to back. I was obviously I, I got married before that. I had two kids back to back. So my sense of time completely morphed. Time took on a whole different dimension with a newborn and a toddler at home. I was working in almost these sort of 15, 20 minute increments without the luxury of time. But I think what that ended up doing was infusing the book with a different level of energy because I was living within the world all 24 hours of my day. But when I was actually on the page was in these short bursts of laser sharp focus, which I think served the subject really well. I think it needed to be an energetic book. You know, it's a big boisterous Indian wedding. It needed to have, be an energetic book. And I also wrote Destination Wedding almost entirely in Bombay as opposed to The Windfall. Okay. So even though they're both based in India, one I wrote actually while I was physically outside India, and one I wrote largely while I was in India. And the wonderful thing about that I realized was being able to, I, at times I would write sitting on this street we live on sort of a waterfront promenade in Bombay and I would sit there with my laptop and write and be able to incorporate things I was seeing and smelling and witnessing immediately into the book which was deeply satisfying so two completely different processes I don't know yet what my process going forward will be obviously like everyone the pandemic has made everything go for a toss so who knows what life will look like when um when it looks goes back to some sort of normalcy, I can only hope that this is temporary. One thing I'm curious about, so this book is um, is fairly short. I think the the version I have is like around 290-ish pages. Um, and so I read the book twice. I read the book last, a couple of months ago after Grace recommended it. And then we decided it was going to be our book club pick. So I, I reread it in order to outline the book and, and to come up with the questions for our book discussion. And one thing that was so interesting to me when I reread it is these specific scenes that stood out in my mind as like these huge scenes. So for instance, one of the scenes was like the dinner between Mr. Doss and Mrs. Sethi at the grandmother's house. And um, if you had asked me, I would have said it was like, this 15-page scene. And in reality, it was so tight. It was like three pages or something very short. Were you, because you were writing with such laser-focused pockets of time, was that affecting kind of how you wrote these scenes and them being short and tight? Or was that through the process of editing? 
God, you two are my dream readers. This is just sad. These are such great questions that I, I haven't even thought about. I feel next time um, I should send you advanced copies before it goes to my editor to get your feedback on it. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, except perhaps it is that I was holding, I was only able to hold smaller pieces in my brain. And perhaps, like I said, maybe that works to the advantage of the book. But I think I've always also... Um, so when we were talking, for instance, earlier about the windfall going into television, I love the format of what television is doing right now. And I think television is doing a little bit of this thing because of the time constraints and the containers that it works within, where it's these characters who you live and breathe with through however many episodes, 10 or 12 episodes, but the scenes still seem to move fast. Mm -hmm. And I really like that structure in general. I like that maybe it's my attention span, maybe it's my inability to linger. Um, and I don't think I've ever had a terribly good attention span, so I can't even blame that one on the kids. <laughs> I think it's just a, a desire to live and breathe with people, but also to do a lot with them and I think I don't want to a lot some literary fiction can get bogged down by a freedom of space and I know that that's not the kind of book that I respond to reading and so it's probably not the kind of book I'm going to write I thought with the transitions between character and the way that you um, shifted perspective and who was thinking or talking. I've never read a book like that where it just transitioned so quickly from one to one to one. And now hearing you say that you wrote in those like little pockets of time, it kind of almost makes sense because the way that you did that, and I don't, I'm not a writer, so I don't know like the proper words for the transitions, but that felt really high energy to me. So like kind of understanding now that's what your circumstances were when you were writing makes a lot of sense. Oh, thank you. And that's something, you know, I always have enjoyed doing because even just in life, I've lived in generally in sort of big bustling crowded cities where everything is interwoven and you really can't exist for more than a few moments without the outside world being part of you, being very intimately involved, especially in India. It's densely populated where I live. It's crowded. It's busy. It's mm -hmm. life is lived. And that's why this pandemic has been so strange as well. Life is lived very much outdoors. Life is lived on the streets. Um, life is lived very communally. And so when you live like that for a long time, or when you even sort of grow up in that, like I did, you do really notice that someone who may not play a pivotal role in your life still plays a big role in your life. I and mean, I'm thinking about sort of the, the booksellers at my local bookshop with wh whom I end up meeting almost every day, but really barely know their names. I'm not even sure I know all of their names, yet it's a very close relationship. Will they feature in my life continuously? No. But right now when I go home in the evenings, I can't help but think about what their families are, where they go home to, who they love, what their lives are about. And I think I really like that about big cities. And I think that also comes through in my writing. Yeah. Yeah. So this book came out June 30th. I'm curious how the response has been and what it has been like promoting a book during a pandemic and, you know, for the most part, the world being quarantined. I have to confess, I kind of like it because, you do. I, <laughs> because I don't have to um, show up at too many events. Did you do <laughs> Which, a big book tour for your first book? I didn't. So, you know, even the way the timing worked out for that one, I had a four week old when that when the windfall came out. Oh, wow. And oh, wow. That, I have to say that was slightly deliberately planned. <laughs> and when when that happened, my wonderful editors, um, I work with a large group of women at Random House and they were so supportive and so wonderful and really um, only sent me to a few things and were very realistic about um, what they uh, had a very open dialogue with me about how I could best uh, 
promote the book and really worked around at that time what my limitations were. And at this time, the limitations just sort of fell on all of us through the pandemic. But now I miss it, of course, for the next one, I hope I get to do a big party and see everyone and do everything and go everywhere and talk to readers. But this time around, I was going through a rather introverted phase as it is. Um, Life had just become sort of so hectic that I wanted to not be that visible and not have to go too many places just because it's been a busy time. And so I actually ended up enjoying how it was done. And I felt I could, thanks to the powers of Zoom and us doing events like this, I felt I could actually do so much more uh, without getting on a plane and getting on a train and getting on even a taxi and spending that time. So I managed to actually do a lot. What I was benefited from hugely, I don't know if you saw, I was very lucky that Chrissy Teigen seemed to really enjoy the book and oh I didn't see that she posted it all over her social media which I think did much more work than I ever could to publicize yeah that's better than any book tour (laughs) exactly and then uh, I think about a week or 10 days ago Mindy Kaling did the same thing oh wow and so so I you know (laughs) as I said to my agent I said I guess I can sit back now I don't need to show up because (laughs) what can I possibly tweet that will have any more power (laughs) than what they're doing in some ways I feel like this is such a good quarantine book just because I'm sitting at home feeling so itchy and missing travel and missing the you know chance experiences of meeting new people that it felt so escapist um that you know it still would have felt escapist uh just because of the place and and the the story if it if we weren't in quarantine but i feel like even more so now i was just like oh wow this feels so and just so the airport scene, my life. right? <laughs> I go back and look at the airport scene and it's just talking to strangers, yeah, yeah. allowing someone to cough in your vicinity. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's fantasy at this point. Yes. <laughs> I know, like hugs and dancing and I don't know, you just can't. Kissing strangers. <laughs> yeah. I watch, I was watching some show on TV the other night and like they were all at a party and I was just like getting all of this anxiety. I'm like, they shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and then you have to really check yourself. I can't remember who we were talking to. It was another author and I'm, I'm totally blanking if it was a conversation we had on the podcast or not, but we were talking about what the literary world will do with 2020 and if they will decide to incorporate COVID and this quarantine into the history and books, or if they will just like totally gloss it over and be like, and then, you know, nothing happened in 2020. <laughs> it's just a, a year that's missing in all of literature. I hope so. I, I am, hope so I'm too. I'm going to be traumatized at the end of this. I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to read a lot of like armchair analysis about like what was happening. <laughs> no, we can just skip 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, one thing that we both said over and over again. Well, first of all, the character development in this book was incredible. Like we fell in love with all of the characters and we want to talk about more of them. But um, we both said over and over again that Tina is someone that we would want to be friends with. And it was very funny because she lived in Williamsburg, too. (laughs) We're all around the same age. But we both felt like we really related to her and would want to be friends with her. So we were just curious, how did you go about developing her? Was she based on you at all? (laughs) Um, parts of her of course but parts of every character I think end up being based on yourself yeah I think it was one thing that I do uh, tend to do I often write from not I mean I don't have huge experience in my two books I've found myself writing from character up not from sort of plot up so I first start to live with and breathe with and sort of touch my characters and the same thing happened here in that Tina was me she was so many of my friends she was just she was so many people who were 
living who who are my friends in both Bombay and in New York and these women who I um I love and these women who I really care about and um the conversations that I have um and so I think I started to sort of live she was my primary and I also loved her father and they were my the two that I first found myself spending a lot of time with um and when I was thinking of my characters and from there their world just sort of built naturally because it was someone who was living a fairly international life and therefore her world was populated by a fairly international crowd and it just sort of went from there I, I, does that answer your question i don't know if it does but i'm i'm curious i've never heard that term writing character up yeah. as opposed to plot up how does that actually work in practice do you like journal about it or do you just sit and think or or what do you do to kind of like discover and spend time with the characters before they're moving around and like part of any book or world I write a lot about them that doesn't end up in the final pages I I sit with them in the sense of writing scenes that I just sort of want to be in that are not my current reality through the lens of someone else. So for instance, one scene that actually does end up, I love writing airports and air travel. That's something that just I find very satisfying because I think it's so many strangers, tensions tend to be high, people have anxieties, people travel for different reasons. I love they're in transit. I love, I mean so such an obvious metaphor, but I really love writing airports. And one thing for destination wedding I was finding is thinking of my characters traveling through airports. And so I had a lot of sort of these little vignettes that didn't end up anywhere in the book that didn't move the plot ahead absolutely nothing but my characters interacting with strangers and i think so much comes out when you interact with somebody who knows nothing about your story and when you know nothing about their story and it's a fleeting interaction one that will never have go beyond a past moment at an airport and i start i would start to sort of write scribble down those scenes uh, and not uh, scribble down sounds so romantic but really just type out i would start to sort of type out these sort of small scenes and then take them to different countries and move with them and think about them and they really do become like my friends and companions and once i start to have a strong sense in my head of who they are what they're missing in their lives and maybe what they want in their lives and what they're grateful for in their lives i think then i start to piece together what their journey is going to be within the time period or the plot or the setting that i'm containing them within how it's long- funny to have this conversation sorry because i'm also teaching columbia at a columbia's mfa program right now and i so i can hear me saying things that i tell my students to do and then i realize that i i should be listening to my own advice right now <laughs> we're getting an education right now um how long do you spend in this world before you actually start you know writing what is going to be you know things that are potentially for your book you know i never know the actual starting point of a book and i never know the actual end yeah. point of a book i think I, i get to a point like just uh, a few days ago i turned new material into my agent and i think i get to a point where th- they're starting to take form and i've got a couple of loosely connected scenes that are sort of moving chronologically and i send them across to my agent and i, I wait for his feedback and i've been working with him from the start for, for six years now so i wait for his feedback and then if he also feels connected to them i have to say when after i finish the windfall i wrote what i thought was going to be the start of my next book and I sent it to him and he wrote back telling me that I was writing the same characters with new names which is not a very valid point so then I know okay I have to put this away I'm not doing it yet I haven't found new people yet and but then when I get to a point where I feel that they're new and they're real and I've set the previous book aside that's when yeah, I I take it to my agent and at some point a beginning starts to take hold I have 
no sense of when it's concrete. And usually after I reach some sort of ending, I'll go back and change the beginning a thousand times over. So it's such a vague concept, but I will say that as of literally last week, I got to that point with my next book of thinking, okay, it's at a point where I'm ready for some, an outsider to see it. It's so interesting to hear your process. It um, From the small sample size of authors we've talked to, it it seems really different. So it's just interesting to see how many different ways there are to like peel an orange. I, yeah, I'm sure. And I, I imagine it'll keep changing. Again, I don't know what my circumstances will be as I keep working into the next book and how things will change and how my concept of time will change. So it's uh, ongoing science, not science, art. So another character we want to talk about is Marianne. And I'm curious, you kind of, you mentioned this really briefly in passing um, about kind of the juxtaposition of her versus Tina, but I'm curious what your intention with her was you know, it felt like she just took on the personality of everyone she dated, which is a realistic character. And that I definitely know women who are like that. It was really interesting because she, I could understand her, even though I I didn't really like her. Yeah. (laughs) We felt the same way. We didn't feel that she was necessarily meant to be likable, but um, yeah, we were like, Tina deserves a better best friend. It should be us. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we're just possessive of this fictional character. That we've Wait, but can I, so can I take, tell you some a very funny uh, thing that I've noticed is that my Indian female readers seem to dislike Tina more and my oh. white female readers seem to dislike Marianne more. And I cannot make sense of it, but I think that is so fascinating. Interesting. So did you write it in your head thinking that one of they're obviously both human and have flaws and have, you know, assets as well? But did you write it? in your mind, liking one more than the other? No, you know what I have to, one thing I have to say with all my characters, I love them not despite their flaws, but for their flaws. I really love the mistakes that they all make. And, um, you know, I live in sort of a trendy neighborhood in Bombay, a little bit, it often gets compared to Williamsburg. In fact, it's a sort of small hipster artsy neighborhood. And um, there's a lot of international people there, uh, a lot of young white women from all around the world, not just the US, who are there sort of in love with India and Bollywood in particular. And they take on a Bollywood persona, which I find so fascinating. And I love that. And I think they're such such interesting women. So they are really the ones who inspired Marianne and this sort of idea of becoming an international chameleon, which I I, I really love that. I find that so interesting. I find that so fascinating. That's and such a so positive I, take on it. <laughs> I hope it make you both feel a little bit guilty about disliking her so much. I feel kind of bad now. I, I don't feel bad. I definitely understood her and like the glamour of kind of her whirlwind romance with the groom's brother. Like I, I got it. Like I wasn't like, oh, this woman's an idiot. I was like, oh, I would totally do the same thing. <laughs> um, but I was like, learn your lesson, Marianne. You've taken on enough personalities. <laughs> I wonder where she'll land. I don't know. But I, I like the idea of people changing very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And especially when you're away from home, you know, when uh, at a week at a wedding, rules don't apply. Everybody That's is such a good point. willing to do really foolish things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the wedding. So um, the wedding was such a fun, glamorous, over-the-top wedding. And we read that it was inspired by your own wedding. <laughs> yes, we need to know about so that. So I need to know everything. Did you have iPads in the gift bag? No. Did you have a bubbles? 
I did not. So I, my wedding was actually not as nearly as over the top because, of course, mine started off with one of those things of, oh, I'm not bothered. I'll just do a quick little sm- small sign thing. But then it took on a life of its own because my, so many of my friends from all over the world decided that they wanted to come. And so I had sort of my high school friends who were coming, my college friends who were coming, my Bollywood friends who were flying in, sort of everybody from all over the world suddenly wanted to come. So I felt I had to put on a bit of a show, but it really wasn't anywhere nearly as elaborate. We didn't even have wedding planners. It was my parents and my parents are disastrous at this kind of stuff. So for the temple ceremony, my parents actually sent everyone the wrong address. So ours was completely the opposite. So at nine o'clock, the night of this sort of big Hindu ceremony that we were putting together, I was getting frantic messages while I was supposed to be putting my makeup on. I was getting frantic messages from everyone that they were at some other temple in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh my <laughs> and God. And my parents had to then spend an hour trying to sh- get everybody back to where they were meant to be. I did, um, I did, I, I don't wear, wear a lot of makeup. I don't, so I didn't have the professional hair and makeup. In fact, I did all my makeup with free Sephora samples. I'm really oh, proud of that. That's impressive. Um, so mine was actually relatively low key but the one thing that did happen it was big it was not sort of over the top in terms of iPads being gifted or um, flowers being flown in from different countries it was but there were a lot of people there were five or six hundred people and um, one of the things that during my wedding that made me kind of sad was that I felt that I didn't get to partake in it as actively as I would have liked to. So my husband and I had to spend a lot of times as you tend to do at these big Indian weddings, which is shaking hands with people. You sort of stand up on this podium and you shake hands with the hundreds of people who go through and then they'll sort of stand there and pinch your cheeks and remind you that they met you when they were, when you were five. (laughs) And these, so um, they really are not for the fun of the bride and groom. And I could, I was standing up there and I could see there was this beautiful sort of circular bar in the middle of the uh, lawn where it was held. And I could see my friends from undergrad meeting my friends from middle school and all of them drinking whiskey at this bar while we were sort of standing up primly and shaking <laughs> hands with 500 of really my parents' friends. And then at the end of the night, they all went off to some hotel where one of them was staying and they kept partying while my husband and I sort of so exhausted finally collapsed and ate lukewarm food <laughs> and that was how sad that was and my friends were sending us pictures of them uh doing shots in one of the bathtubs of the hotel and, and I really felt I wanted to relive all that because I didn't get to experience it with as much fun the first time around so that's why I started writing so no it wasn't as ex- as exciting but it was uh, we also did a small really lovely wedding in New Zealand which was really when we actually got married which was just uh just our families so about 35 people, just a, a tiny thing where we signed and my husband's father officiated and that was really beautiful. So we did it in two corners of the world in two very different styles. Oh, I love that. And this that. is where we live one of them. <laughs> so one thing is that you should know about Becca and I is we both <laughs> love an old people romance. So like- We need a better name for I know, I know. <laughs> it sounds like very stale, but I mean like during quarantine, one of my personal ways to- feel better was to watch like Nancy Myers movies like um and watch you know Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton falling in love that whole right. kind of thing um so we loved the romance between Tina's father and Mrs. Sethi it was it was wonderful um we just wanted you to talk a little bit about that storyline and like how you how you developed that oh, thank you i love that too you know especially that was my favorite I... part of the book i think oh, i think i'm so happy too. to hear that 
Oh, I'm so thrilled to hear that. And the so, dinner scene, too. I loved how quirky he was, too. I, I just feel like the detail about him and his Fitbit, and I think it was in the first chapter, it <laughs> yes. just gave me such a clear understanding of who he was. And, like, I feel like I just, like, got him. Yeah, I completely <laughs> well, I'm so agree. so happy to hear that. I, so, I same thing. You know, I love the idea of – I'm not going to – call it old people's love but second chances yeah love. second that's chances. a way better name that's a, for it than ours was. i it needs it, the, the phrase needs a little finessing i think second chance at love is good but you know i think one of the things especially in india so many people of that generation end up having arranged marriages some very successful some unsuccessful but my i just was interested in thinking about what happens when your first marriage falls apart either because of death or divorce and so um and what happens when your first marriage was not that filled with love anyway or maybe it was you know, Mr. Um, uh, Mr. And Das's character, it, it is a loving uh, first marriage as well, as we see when, when he interacts with his ex-wife. It was full of affection, but sometimes it's just not. And then what happens when you, we are living longer and longer lives? There are higher rates of divorce, higher rates of widowhood. Do you just stop if you if one of those things happens to you in your 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s now if you're going to live into the well into your 90s that seems unfortunate to be lonely for so long yeah so I just like the idea of sort of thinking about what happens if your first happily ever after ends but you keep living and surely you don't have to sort of sign off on romance or love or uh, living together or sharing meals together and I like the idea of also how stubborn we get as we get older and I'm already stubborn and I'm only in my 30s and I imagine I'm just going to continue to get more so because I think when we're younger and we want to date someone or hook up with someone, we're so much more willing to change who we are, parts of ourselves or accept parts of someone else who we might not as we get older. And so this, what love looks like starts to change, what romance looks like starts to change. And maybe because I'm not there yet, I like thinking about it and like sort of imagining what else lies ahead hopefully I'm on my first and only marriage but if not who knows what lies ahead yeah it's interesting to think about especially in terms of previous arranged marriages yeah agree um can we expect to hear any more about Tina's story it sounds like your current book that you're writing on is totally different characters but I feel like this one um ended in in a kind of open-ended way and Mr. Das too I think um well it's in a possibly but as yet confidential but possibly exciting development for also for the screen which will hopefully mean it will take on a life of its own once again and these characters will be able to live in a different medium in a different way um seen through many different people's eyes as it goes further into development so that's something that's uh Nothing's confirmed yet, but I'm hoping will actually happen about whether or not I will write about them more. Not right away. At some point, maybe I love all my characters. I don't know who I'm going to be in a rush to return to, if any. But right now, I am ready to let them continue living where they are without giving away any of the ending. I don't know. Have your readers already read the book? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, so let them continue doing We gave it away doing. yesterday, so early okay. on Wednesday. <laughs> now, but you... The matchmaker was in the first in your first book too, right? I yes. read that somewhere, um, yes. and we haven't this read the right. windfall yet. But um, I thought that was interesting. So maybe yeah. One so, of- so she was the one I didn't want to let go of last yeah. time. And so who knows now with the response I'm getting, it looks like Bubbles or Nono are going to have to be the ones who come back at some oh, iteration. Yeah. I love yeah. both of them. I would like to see Bubbles rise to fame. 
Yeah. I think she needs to. Although Indian Matchmaker, I don't know. Have you seen the show? I haven't. I'm not a big reality TV watcher. I watched well, it. I feel she bubbles a sort of, there's a version of her already doing the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, can you tell us anything about what you're working on next? It's too early to t- say anything yet. It's uh, But sort of, I think, a similar space of... Uh, wealthy Delhi that comes up again in a yeah. different in a different form in a different city but I think it's also so when the pandemic hit I was actually sort of deep into another novel that I thought I was working on but when the uh, the world changed so quickly and so much and I couldn't quite get my head around it and I no longer knew what world I was writing about or for and so I, I shelved that and I think over the last sort of few months I've still been trying to navigate like everybody what how this sort of this just shifts how you look at yourself, how you look at your neighbors, how you look at the world at large, and it's also shifted my approach to fiction. So, I don't know yet, but hopefully, I'll have something a bit more concrete to think about and discuss in a few months. Oh well, I can't wait to hear more. One last question that we wanted to talk about was favorite Indian authors. After reading your book, I realized how few Indian authors I've read, and I want to change that. Oh, that's a great question. So one recently that I'm so thrilled to recommend, she's a good friend of mine. Her name's Avni Doshi. She was just shortlisted for the booker. It's called Burnt Sugar. It'll be out in spring. It's a fantastic book. Okay. Um, so I highly recommend reading her work. Another one um, who was actually my uh, classmate at Columbia, Nahid Patel. Her book is not out yet, but um, it is going to be absolutely phenomenal. I think it'll be out next year. Those are the two, but I've just uh, been done that annoying thing of naming books that aren't yet available. So let me think about <laughs> Actually, naming ones that are um, uh, for people, if you're just sort of getting into South Asian literature, I think there's a lot of really good Pakistani writers as well. I would look at um, Mohsen Hamid's work. I don't know if you've read his books, but he does some really excellent work. And one of, I think it was his first novel, Moth Smoke, that doesn't get read or talked about much anymore. But when it came out, it was phenomenal. And that's another book that has a lot of sort of Karachi high life and parties. And it's a really it also reads like a screenplay. It's just, it's one of my favorite books. I always recommend that to everybody. Um, if you're just getting into South Asian literature, V.S. Naipaul is, of course, a classic. Um, Rohinton Misty is one of my all-time favorites. And um, just now adapted for the screen, but remains one of the great Indian novels of the past few decades is Vikram Seth's Suitable Boy. So those are some of my recommendations, but um, really also just all of the, there's a lot of really good young women writers coming out of India right now. And it, it's an, Avni is one of them, of course, but there's really so many of those that are exciting. Well, thank you. We're going to add those to our list. Yeah. And we'll put them in the show notes too. Yeah. So if you're also looking for um, recommendations, you can check those out. Um, and my last question for you, I'm curious, what are you reading right now? Oh, this is... I was going through a bit of a reading drought. Again, I was sort of paralyzed by anxiety with everything that was happening, but I was recently snapped out of that while reading Roman Alam's Leave the World Behind, which I started reading. And then other than that, on my bedside right now, um, is a lot of my Columbia students writing, which is really exciting. Some of them are doing really strong work and it's always fun to sort of see what the next generation of writing is going to be. And also on my bedside table is how to talk so kids will listen. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Quite a variety. Yeah. Your <laughs> That's <Yeah>. what I'm reading. <laughs> I love that. So you have been such an incredible guest. I loved hearing all about the making of this book and, and more about the characters and the reception. Um, in the tradition of our podcast, we have what we call a desperation minute. Can you tell people where they can find you what they can do to support you just anything you want them to yes. do yeah find me everywhere i'm so easy to find i'm on twitter as diksha basu i'm on instagram i think as diksha underscore basu um and uh, those are the two places where i'm most active on social media in particular on twitter i'm um 
those are the best ways to find me. Uh, buy my books on bookshop.org um, or anywhere else that you want to, but bookshop.org is a great place to support, especially right now as indie bookstores are struggling. So, um, and if you read and enjoy my books, please send me a message. I love that. If you dislike my books, there's absolutely no need to tag me on Twitter. <laughs> I love that. And you fit yeah. in all under a minute. Um, you've been such an incredible guest. We're so grateful for, for you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. 